Good morning. I invite our friends, the two through four-year-olds, and those who will be going with them to head out to Toddler Nursery and to Children's Church. Those who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please turn over to Psalm chapter 27. Psalm chapter 27. As we continue our series together, Songs for Our Savior. Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in His temple. For in the day of trouble He will conceal me in His tabernacle. In the secret place of His tent He will hide me. He will lift me up upon a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. And be gracious to me and answer me when you have said, Seek my face. My heart said to you, Your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for its transforming power as a means of grace to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, this morning as we contemplate fear, as we contemplate despair, as we contemplate spiritual longing. Help our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our desires to be turned toward the living Christ. And we ask it in His name. Amen. So this morning we see Jesus as our eternal dwelling place. Jesus is our eternal dwelling place. David starts out asking a very profound and universal question. Whom shall I fear? There's kind of a machismo, brazen sense, brazen sense, especially among Americans and American Christians, of, well, I'm not ever afraid of anything. And that's just not true. We can lie to ourselves and tell ourselves, how afraid we are or are not of things, 
But all of us have been in circumstances and in situations in our lives where fear has been the normative response. And, and it, it's looked different for a lot of different people. We've all been through a variety of experiences and circumstances, and those experiences and circumstances hit each of us in different ways. But at some time in your life, unless you're just, and I'm, I'm not trying to be clinical here, but just unless you're just legitimately a sociopath, at some point in your life, fear has struck you. If you've lived enough life, enough real life, whether you've gotten that phone call about someone you love having been in some horrible accident and you don't know they're standing, whether you've gone into that doctor's office and they've given you that horrible report that's going to alter your life or the life of someone that you love for years to come, whether you've rounded that corner at that shop you always go to and instead of being welcomed by the person who would normally welcome you at the door, you're standing face to face with someone who's uh, robbing people at gunpoint. There's a host of things, whether you've hunkered down as some of our friends are having to do down on the coast during a Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane that might possibly take your life and you can't get out. We could run through all of the examples, but at some point in our lives, we have been struck with fear. We've been afraid. We all can resonate with what David is talking about in this psalm because it's a universal experience. Humans tend to be afraid. Why? Because it's pretty intuitive to us, no matter what our religious perspective, that there's something horribly wrong and dangerous with the world that we live in. It just is. It's why most of us lock our doors. Several of us lock our doors and arm ourselves. Amen. (laughs) There's a reason why we take incredible precautions for our safety and the safety of those around us. It's because we know, deep down, no one has to teach us this, we know deep down there's something wrong with this world. It's a dangerous place to live in. G.K. Chesterton famously wrote that you don't have to teach children that there are dragons or monsters. Fairy tales are written not to teach them that the world's dangerous. Fairy tales are written them to teach them that the monsters and dragons can be defeated. You don't have to live long. You don't have to live much. You don't have to venture far to know that this is a fretful place to live in. And so David starts by attempting to press fear down. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Why does he have to say this? I have come to realize something incredibly deep in all my years of biblical study, and I want to welcome you in on the deepness of this. It's really not that deep. I'm just dense, and it took me a long time to figure it out. When the biblical writers take the time to write something down as a solution, it's because there is a problem. I know, that seems crazy deep, right? David is not wasting words here. Why would he declare 
that God being His light and being His salvation is a great reason to not be afraid. Because I can guarantee you at some point in David's life, he was afraid. And he understands that the people who might read this have probably also been afraid. Why did Joshua have to have the constant declaration and reminder of being courageous early on? Because maybe he wasn't going to be so courageous. Why did Paul have to constantly remind Timothy to not be afraid and to not be timid and to be bold? Because Timothy probably was going to be timid and afraid and not bold. Why does the Lord tell us over and over and over and over and over again in both Old and New Testaments, don't be anxious, don't be fretful, don't be fearful, do not worry, because that's exactly what we're going to do. And so David starts out by affirming the greatness of the Lord. The Lord is my light. By the way, why, why would you, if you're talking about fear, why would you point out that God is the light? the one most common thing all people at some point have said they are afraid of? The dark. I think, look, we all passed the quiz. Look at that. Everybody gets an A today. Cookie when you get home, all right? It's the dark. Why are we afraid of the dark? Because our senses are dulled and our experiences are distorted. It's a classic saying that nothing good happens after dark, and it's absolutely right. I know this not just from the testimony of others, but from my own testimony. Nothing great happens in the dark. It just doesn't. The dark is a place to hide things, to conceal things, to sneak, and to be deceptive. And so, how does David start out? He says, listen... Listen, if you don't want to be afraid, let me tell you about my God. My God is the light. And in Him, if we want to cite from another passage, there is no darkness at all. His light shines brightly on everything and exposes every danger. But not only is He our light, He's also, as David says in the second half of verse 1, my salvation He's our deliverance. He's the one who sets us free. Saves us from danger. As he continues, he asks the question in a different way. Whom shall I dread? At the middle part of verse 1, he declares that the Lord is the defense of my life. The defense of my life. It's a classic scene. In the film, Saving Private Ryan, they're pinned in. They're trying to get Ryan out. And Tom Hanks' character is up against a bunker. And all he has is his sidearm. And as people are coming over the hill, he's shooting them one at a time, trying to keep his men safe and trying to wait. They heard, a radio call went in, they heard that backup is coming. They heard that support is coming. If they can just hold the position until they get there. And he's, that's all he has left. And over the ridge comes a tank. Now, I have to tell you, if you don't know much about military weaponry, sidearm versus a tank, no go. But it's all he's got. And so he starts shooting at this tank. 
And then suddenly he shoots, and the tank explodes. And he's shocked by this occurrence. And he looks up, and there's the defense. There's the backup. There's the rescue team. There's the one to save them. There's the one to bring defense to their life. And a great many of those men are able to be set free and live. God is the defense of my life. Friend, I want to tell you, if somebody's going to be the defense of my life, the Most High God is a great choice. There's not going to be anybody who can do it better. And He'll not only protect me from my outward adversaries, but He promises to protect me from my inward adversary myself. Because friends, I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of things in this world that I do get afraid of. There's a lot of things in this life that I do dread. None of them make me more frightened or more full of dread than my own potential to sin. I know, this is not me being braggish, this is me being honest and transparent. I know of no more spiritually dangerous entity than myself. And God is so kind to be the defense of my life. Because the same David that needed the Lord to deliver Goliath into his hand is the same David that needed to be delivered from his own actions with Bathsheba. Praise God that the is the sort of God who is our light and our salvation and our defense from enemies without and the enemy within. So he asked the question in a twofold way. Whom shall I fear? Or whom shall I dread? And the answer should be no one. And then he moves to the outward enemy. When evildoers come against him, he knows that they're going to stumble and fall. He knows that his heart does not have to be afraid. He knows that he can be confident in spite of facing this great war that is before him. Why? Because his God is all of these great and good things. Friends, so often we as believers despair in the face of adversity. We despair in the face of fearful and dreadful things because our eyes are not lifted up upon the goodness of our God. And so what does David do? He, asks, he, he makes a request. One thing I have asked. This is challenging. It's very challenging for me. I pray it will be challenging for you. Notice what David says. He says, one thing, verse 4, I have asked from the Lord, and that's what I will seek. Can, can you, I know we've already read it, so it's kind of a giveaway already. But if someone were to come to you and say, you could ask one thing of God and he won't say no, what will it be? One thing I have asked from the Lord, this is the thing that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I'm, I'm going to be honest. I, that's not what I was going to ask. That's not what I was going to ask for. 
it's probably not even in my top five. If I'm just being incredibly transparent, like, I'd have to get reminded that this is a good thing to ask for. It is the thing David goes to. One thing. One thing I have asked of the Lord. This is the one thing I will seek from Him. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life. Mm. What, what's, what's, what's going on here? Why would David ask for this? Why would David seek this with his whole being? Because of what can happen in the house of the Lord. Notice the two things that David says can happen in the house of the Lord. First, he can behold the beauty of the Lord. You can't behold the beauty of the Lord if you're not in the presence of the Lord. What is the chief end of man? Go ahead. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life so that I can enjoy the beauty of the Lord. I want to delight in Him and in His glory and in His presence and in His grace and in His mercy and in His compassion and in His, and His just His splendor. The fact that He has freed me and redeemed me and set me free and conformed me to the image of His Son and has seated me in heavenly places and has invited me in as a welcome guest, seated me at His table, and He has allowed me to be a participator in the glory of His Son, Jesus, and I get to bask in the full oughtness of my life by properly reflecting, image-bearing forever. I want to see the blessing of the Lord. That's what I want to say. I want to see the beauty of it. I want to see the delight of it. I want to see the glory of God. That's what I want to see. He wants to be in the house of the Lord. He wants to be in the presence of God. Second, what else can you do in the house of the Lord? Notice what he says here. He says, and to meditate in his temple. We have to be really careful here. Because this English word meditate has made a lot of transformation over the past few thousand years since David wrote this down in the Psalms. And if we're not careful, we may step past the Middle Eastern meaning that it has and reach out to a Far Eastern meaning that it does not have. Meditation here does not mean the emptying of one's mind to try to attain to some otherworldly self-actualization. It's not what this means. Christian friend, if that's what you're trying to get this to mean, please walk away from that. What does this word mean in a classical Hebrew Middle Eastern context? It means two things. It has twofold reality behind it kind of wrapped up in the, in the classic English word of inquiry, to inquire. 
I want to simultaneously think deeply on the things of God and ask my questions of the Lord that I might know Him in a greater way and gain greater insight into the glorious splendor I already know He has. This is what David is talking about when he talks about the person in Psalm 1 who's planted by those streams of water. Upon his law, he meditates both day and night. He doesn't empty his mind out to another realm of self-actualization. No, he inquires deeply about the law of God both day and night. That's what it means there. And it is what it means here. Friends, when we enter into the house of the Lord, the very presence of God Himself, not only do we get to see and participate in and revel in His beauty, His delightfulness, and His splendor, but we get to inquire deeply about the Lord. I get to find out even more about who He is. I get to find out even more about how glorious He is. And friends, the depth of God is inexhaustible. You'll never reach the bottom of it. For He is eternal and everlasting and omniscient and omnipresent and eternal and all-glorious, etc., etc. So we can run through all the attributes of God. And friends, here's the thing. Those are things that I am not. You say, but Philip, what about glory one day? Are you going to be omniscient in glory one day? Negative, Ghost Rider. Will you be all-powerful? Will you be all-present? Will you be triune in your existence? Will you have been before the span of time to after the span of time? Will you hold all of creation as a speck in your hand, timeless in your nature? Of course not. That's not who you are. You're the creature, not the creator. And so for all eternity, when you stand in glory before the Lord in His house, day by day, whatever that looks like, I don't know how you do that for eternity. Not real sure. I'm, I'm already talking outside my pay grade. Day by day, moment by moment, for all of eternity, there will be more to learn about the glory of our God. And greater ways to fall in love with Him. I like to compare it to the marital relationship. Those of you who've been married for a long time, I know on paper it doesn't seem that way, but when you work out the percentage math, I've been, I've been married a long time. Next year, when Amanda and I celebrate our anniversary, we will officially have been married to one another for half of our lives. We will have known each other for 75% of our lives because we met each other when we were about 10 years old. Actually, more than 75% of our lives. Wow, look at me doing the bad math. Trying to cut myself some slack how old I actually am. 80% of our lives. And if God is kind to us and lets us live into our 80s, we will have been married 70-80% of that time by then. That's the way the percentages work. We will have essentially known each other our whole lives. 
And I want to tell you, and I think, she would, I think she would say the same about me because God has been working in my life. I love her far more now than I ever did then. It's because I found out so much more about her along the way. And she's in, imperfect, as am I. Can you imagine what it will be like to have all of our imperfections removed, glory and conformity to the image of Christ attained, gracious gift of God that it is, with clarity of mind and spirit and emotion unimpeded by fallen sinful nature or a fallen sinful environment, in the presence of the resurrected, exalted Christ and the glorious presence of the Most High God, for all eternity, moment by moment, learning of more ways that He is glorious that we could never have comprehended in our sin. One thing I have asked, and this thing I will seek that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold His beauty and to inquire of Him in His temple. Friends, when I read this this week, I was crushed with soul-shaking conviction. And I had to ask myself, why was this not the first thing that came to my mind too. If I could ask God anything and He could not say no, why was it not this? Why was it anything else? Because for me it was. And what benefit comes to the one who has this kind of a relationship with the Lord? Notice what He says. In the day of trouble... In the day of trouble, friend, in the day of trouble. When is that? It was either yesterday, today, or tomorrow, or some combination of all three of those. A very wise man told me a long time ago, he said, you're either coming out of trouble or you're about to go into trouble. You have very short periods of time where you have no trouble. Why? Because the Scripture even declares it. This life is full of trouble. In the day of trouble, what does God do for this one that has this longing, that sees Him as His light, that, that sees Him as His defense, that sees Him as His salvation, that longs to engage His beauty and to inquire of His glory? In the day of trouble, our God conceals us in His tabernacle. That word for conceals means to shelter, to keep safe. Tabernacle is a place of refuge, a place of safety. In other words, if you want to really kind of strip it down, in the day of trouble, God keeps me safe in His safety. Again, I don't know of anybody that could do it better. What else, what else does God do? In the secret place of His tent... He will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock and give me firm footing and a sound foundation. 
And then notice what David says. He, he begins to express a longing and a commitment to praise the Lord. Why? First, in verse 6, his head has been lifted up above all of his enemies. It's been lifted up. God has delivered me and exalted me above those who stand against his glorious purposes. And in doing so, has motivated David to offer sacrifices with shouts of joy in this house where he's dwelling. And he will sing his praises to the Lord. For years, years, it's not new to Sylvania, it's not new to modern Christians, it's not new it, for years. And, and by years, I don't mean 50 years, I don't mean 100 years, 1,000 years or more. There has been strong conflict in a variety of Christian churches about the nature and functionality of musical worship in worship services. Shocking, I know. We want to feel special that this is a new issue for us. It is not. Just as a brief kind of aside, don't want to get lost in the weeds on this, but a huge number of the really, really, really old hymns that everybody likes were ferociously opposed by the church at the time they were written because most of them were set to bar tunes from the taverns. And the people in said, I cannot believe that we would ever think about worshiping God with these pagan-sounding songs. Does that resonate with anybody? Yeah, we've been talking about that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And when they moved off a of Gregorian chant, oh my goodness, you don't want to know how bad it was in the church at the time. What do you mean we're not going to sing and chant in Latin with no music? What's wrong with you? Crazy people. Anyway, and so, you know what fixes the worship wars? One thing, one really easy thing fixes the worship wars. There is nothing in the Scripture that says, I won't sing to the Lord with great shouts of praise because of what He's done for me, if, and then you can just fill in whatever the if is after that. Nothing in the Bible says that. You know what the Bible says? I will sing praises to the Lord. That's it. There's a period on the end of the sentence. He has saved me. He has delivered me. He has transformed me. He has lifted me out of a dark place. He set my feet on high. He has rescued me from my enemies. And I will sing praises to the Lord. Period. And if anything motivates us to not sing praises to the Lord that is absent of the salvation that God has given us, we have yielded to the adversary and not to the glory of God. David, Notice David here doesn't say, what does it sound like? What does it look like? Is it new? Is it old? Is it the one that we did last week? Is it my favorite? Is it my least favorite? Does it have a good tempo? Do they have the words up on PowerPoint? I'm distracted by the thing that's on the PowerPoint. Why can't we sing it the way that they used to? Why did they have to change the tune? Why did Chris Tomlin have to ruin all of our great songs? Notice David does not say any of that. 
You know what he says? He says, he has rescued me. He's delivered me. He's hidden me in his secret place. He saved me from my enemies. He saved me from myself. I will sing praises to the Lord. Why? Because David is dwelling in the house of God, observing God's beauty and meditating on the greatness of the Lord. He really doesn't care about all that other stuff. He cannot contain the joyful song that echoes through his voice to a God who would so willingly save a wretched man like him. He can't help but sing. Friends, if you want a superior musical worship experience, it always starts with self. I can't sing. It's awful. It's an atrociously bad train wreck. It is terrible. One time ever in my life I was asked to sing publicly on a stage in front of people. And never again since I was 11 years old has anyone dared to do that. It's a bad deal. But my family and unfortunately the Lures who all sit closest to me will affirm that does not hinder me from singing loudly. Off-key and often off-tempo. Why? Because I have been set free and redeemed from my sin and I've been welcomed into the presence of the Most High God, not only as an invited guest, but as a member of His family, a citizen of His kingdom, a co-heir with Christ. And I don't really care how much it bothers the people in the immediate proximity of me, how awful I'm. Sing louder if you sing better so it drowns me out. He saved my soul from judgment and death and sin. I was God's enemy. And now He calls me son and friend. I will sing His praises is what David says. And you know what else is going to happen? God will hear... What is this, like the dozenth time in 27 Psalms that David has made a point of this? God will hear us when we cry out to Him. Do you hear me this morning? God will hear you when you cry out to Him. Hear me, O Lord, when I cry with my voice and be gracious to me. Answer me when you said, seek my face. My heart said, your face I shall seek, O Lord. Hear me when I cry and let me seek your face. And then I want you to see David's progression here about the seeking of the face of God. Because I know this idea of seeking God's face makes some people uncomfortable. Because, you know, no one seeks the Lord. It's actually a Bible verse that says that. No, no one does that. So how is David seeking God and at the same time nobody seeks God? Because David's not somebody who's outside of the house anymore. 
He, he doesn't live in the city of man anymore. He's not in the city of destruction anymore. The journey has been made. God has moved him and seated him in heavenly places, seated him upon a throne, clothed him with the righteousness of Christ, has marked him as his own, has his name, his name has not been blotted out of the, of, of the, of the book of life. He has been received in as a son. He's been received in as a citizen. He's been received in as a joint heir, a co-heir with Christ Jesus, one who has been supplied the living presence of the Holy Spirit of God. These people can seek God all day. In fact, they're mandated to do so. And David says, you know what, God, you said seek my face. And I said, my heart immediately said, God, your face I will seek. I want to know you, Lord. I want to understand you. I want to have the experience Moses was denied. I want to see you in your face. I want to look you in your eyes. And I don't want it to destroy me. But I want it to save me. And notice what David then points out. He says, God, when you call for me to seek your face, and my heart declares that I will seek your face, please, God, don't hide your face from me. Oh, wouldn't that be terrible? You need to seek my face. I'm going to seek your face. Nope, can't see it. Wouldn't that be awful? Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away from me. Don't abandon me. Don't forsake me. Even though those who are closest to me do this often in my life. But you, Lord, you will take me up. Aren't you glad to know this morning, friend, that if you are truly in Christ Jesus, God will never abandon you. Ever. And then notice what he asks. Teach me your way, O Lord. We touched on that very recently. You you can't pursue the way of the Lord unless God opens up the pathways for you to pursue the way of the Lord. You cannot, through the exercise of sheer intelligence and self-power and will, Educate your way into the supreme glory of God. You can't do it. It cannot be done. God must instruct you through His Spirit. And there's a handful of ways that He does that for us. He's laid them out very plainly in His Word. One of them is constant and regular consumption of His Word. One of them is constant and regular calling out to Him in humility for help. We call it prayer. One of them is constant and regular participation in the lives of others that God is doing that with that we might see blind spots that otherwise would be missed. It's called not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. And one of them, David already touched on, is the offering of vocal praise back to God, usually in the form of musical expression. Singing the praises of the Lord. This is how God teaches us His ways. And it leads us on a level path. And it keeps us from being delivered over to our adversaries. And it keeps the false witnesses that have risen up against us from showing themselves to be true even though they are false. And notice what David says, and I love this. So many other things that we could touch on, but we're past time. In verse 13. I love this. 
I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I don't want to unnerve anybody. But I I want you to notice in most of your Bibles the phrase, I would have despaired, is in italics. It means that translated phrase is not in the original Hebrew text. It's supplied by the translator to make the sentence make sense. Why, Why would they choose that phrase? Because David in verse 12 is talking about all the despairing things that could happen to him. And what really is going on is that in the face of the greatest level of personal conflict that the individual could be facing, essentially what David says in verse 13 is, Surely I have believed that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Okay, so what's happening in the middle of that? All of the worst of human circumstances are going on at one time in David's life. Overwhelming circumstances. And then he makes the aggressive declaration, Surely I have believed that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'm facing the worst possible existence that I can, but I believe I will still see the goodness of God. What is it that bridges the gap between those? It is left to myself. I would have only responded with despair and hopelessness. That's why the translators plug that in there for us. Because that's the bridge between the experience that David is having right now. I should be despairing and experiencing a high level of hopelessness because of how difficult life is. But I know I will see the goodness of God. And friend, this morning, I know for a fact that many of you are on the verge of despair. You're facing all manner of circumstances that are incredibly trying and incredibly difficult. Profoundly painful. And and you're on the verge of just wanting to throw your hands up. Friend, I would implore you to believe. It's by faith not by sight, to believe that you will see the goodness of the Lord. But Philip, you don't know how bad it is. You're right, I don't have any idea. No clue. I'm not living it, and I'm not going to pry it out of you to tell it to me. And even if you told it to me, I'm still not living it. But what I can tell you is The truth of God's Word matches the experience of my life. No matter how awful your circumstances are, they pale in comparison to the goodness of the Lord. They're not even close. The Apostle Paul, 
when faced by adversaries within the church, adversaries outside of the church, a real and genuine threat of his life being taken for the gospel that he was preaching, the pain and the sorrow and the suffering of widespread persecution that had begun among those believers, the things that it was cutting off about daily life to them when they began facing that, We often think about persecution just in senses of people being arrested or people being put to death for the gospel. We often forget about the extenuating circumstances that are birthed out of that kind of persecution, particularly in the first century where the husband is imprisoned or killed and now the wife is essentially a widow and she has these children and they have no one to work and help to provide and there's this difficulty of living in a society like that and now they're on the reliance of other people. There's this fear of what may happen to them because the protectorate is now gone. Will they come and raid us at any time? Will I be able to get a job? Will people ask me questions about how will I offer up my life to Caesar? Will I have to exercise false worship just to engage in public realities? Will they begin to so overtax me that I now lose all of my resources? And a whole host of other dominoing effects that happen in society that is marked by severe persecution. And in the midst of that, the Apostle Paul said, I do not count this present suffering to be compared with the glory of that is to come. How did he get through? Surely I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. How do you get through? How do you get through? By having Jesus Christ as your dwelling place. He is your refuge. He is your tabernacle. He is the secret place that God has hidden you in His tent. He is your firm foundation. He is the one who lifts up your head. He is the one who does all of these things for us by His death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Notice what he closes with, and we'll close with this this morning. Wait... For the Lord. That word for wait can often be translated as trust or hope in. Trust in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Why? Because you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you find some great inner strength to go on? No. 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 There's no bootstraps. They're broken. There's no inner strength. In fact, you're barefoot. You're reaching down for bootstraps and you're not wearing shoes. How is it that you can be strong? How is it that your heart can have courage? By waiting for, by hoping for, by trusting in the Lord. When the Old Testament declares, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. That language is the large warrior shield. I've I've used this before, but it's a great picture. It's the large warrior shield. And they were usually designed in such a way that you could jam it down into the ground and tilt it, and you could squat down behind it and hide so that nothing could get through when the enemy was firing things and throwing things in your general direction. Friend, when it says that the Lord is a shield about us, 
the, our anointer and the one who lifts up our head. God Himself is the warrior shield. And He brings us in underneath it. He holds us in His hand and He whispers the hope-filled promise to us, nothing can snatch you out of My hand. And why is that? Why is that true? Because you're such a great guy. Such a great gal. God really needs you on His team. It's true because Jesus Christ Himself is our dwelling place. He has suffered for us the most profound measure of suffering anyone could ever suffer. He was forsaken so that we would not be. He was crushed and broken so that we could be made whole. He was stricken and afflicted that we might be welcomed in. He was treated as an enemy that we might be made the friends of God. Friend, I really don't know what everybody's going through here today. I know what some of you are going through. But whatever it is, have the necessary faith in the work of Jesus Christ to know that your horrible, terrible, awful circumstance is small compared to the greatness and the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Let's pray together.